come now to the proclamation of God's Word, continuing through the book of 1 Peter, as we are observing how, as believers, we are called to live in this world in our living hope, despite the culture and how it may be hostile or blow or discriminate against God's people, His church. And Peter shows us how we are to be uh, his people, re- being reminding of us of who we are as being God's own possession and then how we are to live. And our text this morning as we come into it is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. And uh, Peter, I can tell you as a pastor, it is a book that a lot of pastors, they love it, but it can be really hard to preach. And the reason for that is they're afraid to preach it. Because there's a lot of things Peter says here that sometimes uh, run contrary to the popular thought of the day. And so there's, a, there's a, a, a fearfulness there as we approach these things. But we come and we proclaim it because it is God's word. And we know that it is true and that it is right. And what God says here is for our good and for his glory. And so we want to listen with hearts that are warmed by the grace of God through the Spirit. So then, let us read now 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. This is God's Word. He says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, whether it be to the uh, or to governors sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word this morning and for the truth that is there. We ask now that you would help us to see the goodness of your grace and mercy in Christ as we consider these truths and how we might glorify you as your people in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, as we began to consider Peter's exhortation to believers. He's he's explained the doctrine. He's explained the gospel, reminded them who they are. And now he's beginning to exhort believers on how, how they are to live in response to a hostile culture and a society that discriminated against them and even would persecute them for their faith. And his charge was that we who are God's people by means of his grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we are to live honorable, that's the key word, honorable lives that honor God. And we do that because we are citizens of God's kingdom, which makes us then sojourners and exiles in the kingdom of this world. We live here, but we are not from here. We belong to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city made without hands. Our king is Christ the Lord. 
And as citizens of God's kingdom, we are then recipients of so many gracious benefits. As we've seen here already in 1 Peter, we are a royal priesthood. We can come before God and worship Him as His people. We are a holy nation consecrated by Him, a people of God's own possession, His own treasure. And we have a new and a living hope. But sometimes we who are Christ's people, we come into conflict then with this world in which we are sojourning. We feel that, we know that, we understand that. We find ourselves at odds even with the very governing powers that exercise control over us, whether they are national or at a local level. And so the question then is, how do Christians live honorably for the honor of God when the civil powers promote a society that dishonors everything God has declared good in rights? That is a question God's people have asked for millennia. And it is a question, I believe, that the the Christians in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Bithynia were asking of Peter. And so he's going to explain it to them. But they want to know then, well, Peter, how are we to conduct ourselves? If we are a royal priesthood, if we are God's chosen people, people of his possession, how are we to conduct ourselves in honor in this civil political environment of the Roman Empire that worships a pantheon of other gods that does not worship Christ, that promotes immorality on all sides and violates your law openly. How do we live? How do we live as citizens of Christ's kingdom and worship Him when the very powers that be demand that we legally show devotion to a crazy and deranged and delusional empire? that often exercises tyranny and rules unjustly over the peoples of the earth. Or if we were to ask the question today as Christians and put it in our current context, how are we as Christ's church to live in a nation where it is legal to kill unborn children simply because they are unwanted? How are we as a holy nation to live where God's created order for family is openly mocked and legally ignored? How are we as a God's royal priesthood to respond to a political environment where there is much greed and the promotion of personal agenda taking precedence over justice and righteousness? And how is the gospel even going to flourish In a kingdom where evil is called good and good is called evil so openly. How do we stand against the power of a state when it bears its arm against God's people and righteousness? What recourse do we have? Well, the answer that Peter gives us is not one of resistance or revolution. We're not called to pick up the sword and to wage war with violence. And we do not mock or respond with hate to those civil magistrates or political leaders that would stand against us as God's people. Instead, we are called to respond with peace and love and respect as we rest upon the freedom of God's grace. That's how 
we would summarize what Peter says here. We respond with peace and love and respect as we rest upon the freedom of God's grace. You see, we reveal the peace of the gospel to the world by living peaceably as much as we are able in the world. That's the first thing that Peter directs us towards here. He begins with an imperative, and we'll see him give this similar imperative as we continue through his letter. He says in verse 13, be subject, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Be subject, subjection. Uh, It's literally putting yourself under another to show obedience to another. And it's a word that really kind of makes us feel uncomfortable, not just as Christians, but if you were to talk to almost anybody today, I think they'd find the word subjection an uncomfortable word. It doesn't appeal to our modern sensibilities of independence, especially if you were raised in a culture that promotes individual freedom. Our nation, of course, was founded by people who resisted the power of the king. And without getting into a history discussion on the moral rightness of that, I, I think it's fair to say that, this, that since that time, there's been a, a fierce spirit of independence that characterizes the American way of life. But here Peter tells us that we, as God's people citizens of his kingdom, sojourning in the kingdoms of this world, we ought to be subject to human governmental institutions. And we know he's talking about civil powers, uh, government, political powers, because he qualifies human institutions with two examples. He says, be subject to the emperor as supreme, recognizing that top level of governing power in his day, who was uh, probably Nero, if we date this letter correctly. And he also says, be subject to his governors, being the emperor's governors of the various provinces and regions of Rome, the provincial rulers, or even the uh, political leaders of certain particular cities as well. It's everybody under the emperor, the, the lower magistrates. And so this little expression, be subject to all human institutions from the emperor to his governors, is sort of like saying from the greatest to the least, from the person with the most power and control over the civil affairs of the nation, all the way down to those of the lowest level. He's being broadly inclusive here. No level of civil power is being excluded when it comes to being in subjection. Also, we see Peter doesn't just instruct believers to be subject then to the righteous human institutions, but to be subject for the Lord's sake, he says, to every human government. That means the good ones and the bad ones, the just ones and the unjust ones, from the most powerful king down to the assistant to the regional manager. If you watch The Office, some of you caught that. But that's the idea here. From the highest to the lowest, whether they are righteous or not. 
Now, we rightly would ask, what's the reason for this, Peter? Why ought we to do this? Because it seems rather awkward that believers who lived and live in nations and states with corrupt and or tyrannical governing authorities should be in subjection to them. After all, they are citizens of a better kingdom. Why should they be in subjection to those who even do unrighteousness? Well, Peter gives us a couple of reasons why it is honorable and right for us as believers to do this. First, he says that these human institutions of government, they exist, he says, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. He's speaking, of course, of the function of earthly powers that they are called upon by God to fulfill. They're to punish evil and to promote good. In other words, they're to keep order to keep peace in society. That function is given to them by God. It belongs to them. In fact, we see this also in the writings of the Apostle Paul in Romans 13, where he writes, Romans 13, 1 through 4, let every person be in subject, there's that word again, to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And so Paul there, he sounds very much like what Peter is saying, because they're both affirming the same scriptural principle, that is that governing authorities exist by the hand of God. They are ordained by God. They are called by Him to do His will. They are a product of His sovereign decree. And He ordained them to exist so that they would keep order in society by punishing evil and promoting good. And here is why that is so important to understand that, to understand that it is God that has established the powers that be, both the righteous and the unrighteous. It's simply this, because sometimes they are, in fact, unrighteous. They do fail this function that they are called to do. That is why we see so many unjust laws passed and sin and evil promoted and even the good things of God called evil or harmful in society. But despite that, despite the corrupt ruling authorities who often act unjustly, we know that because they are in that position, they have that position because God has put them there. He is the ultimate authority. He is still in control. And He is working even through their unrighteousness and their uh, lack of justice to fulfill His ultimate purposes in this world. And we rest 
in his sovereign wisdom and his ultimate control. As Proverbs 21.1 explains, the heart, the king's heart, is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. And so even when human authorities fail us and fail to function as they ought, as laid out in Scripture, and they rule unjustly and tyrannically, we can still be assured that God ultimately is in control. He has not let go of that stream of water. He is still working and pouring out His will in this world. And that is why Peter says, for the Lord's sake, be in subjection to every human institution. For the Lord's sake, as God's people, we do not subject ourselves to human government because they demand it of us or society tells us that we must. No, we do it because we follow a higher king, the king of heaven. God is our ultimate authority and in control of all things. And he has ordained them for our good and for his glory. And so we trust him. What that means then is when we follow God's will, when we live peaceably as much as we are able in subjection, that is an act of faith in God. It is recognizing that he is still working even through the evil and the unfairness that we see being promoted within the civil powers that be. And so Peter informs us in verse 15 that it is God's will then for us to do this. It is what He desires of us as we conduct ourselves honorably in our earthly sojourn, looking for the fulfillment of our living hope. Human authority is not ultimate authority, but it is subjected to God Himself. And that gives us hope and encouragement. And so when earthly powers do, unact, uh, do act unrighteously and they fail us, as they so often do, we're not left without an advocate. We have the King of heaven to whom we can appeal. God Almighty who sees all and knows all and has promised that He will defend His people. And so as His people, as believers, we can subject ourselves to those earthly powers respectfully, but without fear. Because we know our Lord has absolute control. Now, that doesn't mean, and I have to touch on this, it doesn't mean that we are required by God to follow every human law. In fact, that's biblical. And I say, well, wait a minute. Didn't you just say Peter's calling us as believers to be subject to every earthly power? Yes, But that doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't teach exceptions because we see those exceptions in Scripture. Many times through the uh, annals of history, human governments have asked believers, have asked the church and God's people to do things that would be in open violation of God's law that He has revealed both in nature and in His written Word. 
And no earthly power, no matter how great they may think that they are, they have no right or no authority to legislate against God's law. After all, as we have just seen, it is God who has ultimate authority. And the very reason that they exist is because he has ordained and willed it to be. And he can just as easily remove them. His laws are above human laws. And for human laws to be truly good, they must flow from God's law. And so we see then, through the Scriptures, acts of godly, civil disobedience that were required of His people whenever the earthly powers told them to do something contrary to God's law. In Daniel chapter 3, we read of that Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, who had made a very large idol and he legally obligated by decree of the king for all people under his reign to bow down and worship it or be burned alive in a fiery furnace. And if you know this narrative, you know we're talking about those three old Uh, Testament saints who were faithful to the Lord and did not bow down. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they respectfully refuse. And of course, God delivers them. But even a little bit later in Daniel chapter 6, the prophet Daniel himself faced a similar situation. There, King Darius, uh, who was coerced by corrupt vassals and officials, makes a decree that it's illegal to pray for 30 days to anybody but the king himself. And if you do that, you will be punished by death by being fed alive to lions. And Daniel, of course, is faithful to the Lord. He publicly would pray to the Lord three times a day. And after this decree was made, he didn't stop praying to God. He continued to do so. And And if you're familiar with the story, you know how he was arrested and how God delivered him from the mouth of the lion. We get another incident from Peter himself of this godly civil disobedience. For in Acts chapter 5, the Sanhedrin, the ruling Sanhedrin, had told the apostles to stop preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, because the church was growing by leaps and bounds. They didn't like that. I mean, they had put Christ to death in hopes that they put an end to this, and now the church is just exploding. And so they tell them, nope, you cannot preach. You cannot teach what Christ taught you. They continue to do it anyhow, and so they're arrested and brought before the high priest, and the high priest tells Peter, he says, we strictly charged you not to teach in Jesus' name, and you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. I think they were feeling a little guilty there. But Peter, in great courage, how does he reply? Well, he looks to the high priest. The high priest who had control over many of the religious and civil life of the people. Who was supposed to know the law of God. But was not following the law of God and prohibiting Peter to preach the gospel. Peter looks to him in the eye and he says, we must obey God rather than men. You have no right to tell us to not proclaim the gospel of Christ. 
And so when human authorities then try to legally force Christians to do something contrary to God's revealed word, it is not only right, but it is our duty as servants of God to not comply. But for everything else, even the laws that don't make sense to us, even the taxes that are a little uncomfortable, Peter says, be subject, be peaceable. As much as you are able, live peaceably as law-abiding citizens. And so we do. We obey the laws of the land, even those ones that seem so pointless at times. We pay our taxes. As Christians, we're not trying to create undue controversy and chaos. We're not called to start revolutions, but to bring reformation through our love of God and neighbor. And the way we do that is by living with the peace that God gives us in Christ, knowing that ultimately our King is above all of this that we see going on around us. And so we can be good law-abiding citizens, showing that uh, we trust God more than we trust our government. And in doing that, we reveal the peace of the gospel to the world that truly needs that peace. One way we do that, as Peter says here, is by silencing slandering mouths. In verse 15, for it is the will of God that you subject yourself, that by doing good, that is being obedient, by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. God's people have always been accused of being law-breaking insurrectionists and rebels in this unbelieving world. And there's a long history of people making false charges against Christians, against believers, accusing them of a variety of, of horrible and evil things in an effort to silence them. The church has been accused in both the court of public opinion and legal courts of of being a danger to the world, a, a harm to society, a threat to law and order. In fact, we see it in the Bible. In Acts 24, Peter, or not Peter, rather, Paul, the Apostle Paul, is brought before, he's been arrested, brought before Felix, Roman governor of Judea. And charges are brought against him by one named Tertullus. And he says to Felix this, he says, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg in your kindness to hear us briefly For we have found this man, speaking of Paul, we have found this man a plague who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And of course, that was not true. Jesus himself was also accused of being an insurrectionist before Pilate. That was the charge the, the, the Sanhedrin was trying to bring. He was trying to set up a kingdom that was contrary to Rome and would resist it. And there are records of the early church being accused of things like kidnapping children, uh, things like cannibalism. 
when, when plagues would fall upon certain regions or fires or other natural disasters, many of the peoples in the first century would accuse the Christians of being the reason for these things happening in an effort to silence them and destroy them. But the peaceable lives of God's people, filled with the peace that only the gospel can give, shows that all those charges are simply lies. Even Pilate could not find anything wrong with Jesus. And Paul's accusers, after questioning him for many months, had great difficulty finding any fault with him, and they were forced to declare in Acts 26.31, this man is doing nothing to to deserve death or imprisonment. He lived peaceably. He lived honorably for the honor of God. And living honorably then reflects this piece of the gospel. And it just doesn't silence the foolish mouths though. Because as we saw last week, it does something else. It will open mouths to glorify God. Remember verse 12 of First Peter 2, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, there's the foolish mouths, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. So we reveal then the peace of the gospel by living peaceably in subjection to the civil powers. And that silences by God's will, the foolish mouths, and it opens others to worship Him as King. But there's something else we do as well when we come into this world and we feel this collision of the kingdom of this world, particularly in the civil governmental arena and the kingdom of God. And that is this. We rest in the freedom that God has given You rest in the freedom that God has given you in Christ by His grace. Peter says in verse 16, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Even while believers are to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human authority, they do that not as slaves, not as those who are in bondage, but as those who are already set free by the grace of God. When he says to live as people who are free, he's not speaking in metaphor here. He's talking about an actual characteristic that marks those who are God's people by his mercy and grace. And there's an interesting play on words here in verse 16. Those who are free was the common Greek word for those who are no longer slaves. They've been set free. They've been redeemed. But he says, you are to live as servants, or literally as slaves. Slaves or servants of God. You've been set free to serve the Lord. It's an ironic contrast, and it's meant to convey a very important reality of the gospel that flows from our identity with Christ. You see, in Christ you are indeed free. You are free from sin, Romans 6. In Christ you are free from the curse of the law, Galatians 3. In Christ you are free from the law of sin and death, Romans 8, 2. Also in Romans 8, in Christ you are free from a spirit of fear. 
You are free from all those things. The world, sin, the devil, death. But you are not free to abuse the grace of God. You are not free to sin so that grace may abound, as Paul puts it. And when he asks that question, shall we sin that grace may abound? How does he respond? God forbid, absolutely not. You see, our freedom in Christ is never a license to do evil. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that as believers we will never sin. We know there's a struggle between our old nature of who we were before Christ and now who we are. But he's getting at here a sinful pattern that willfully submits to those old fleshly desires and sins and then goes to grace as an excuse to do so. Well, if there's grace, I might as well go ahead and sin as I wish. Doing so, though, demonstrates you don't understand the nature of sin and the nature of grace itself. And when freedom is used as an excuse for wickedness, it demonstrates that a person is actually not free in Christ at all. You see, bondage is the natural state of the unnatural soul. The Bible tells us and has much to say about this. Those who are apart from God are in bondage to sin. Jesus said in John eight thirty four, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. In Galatians 4, Paul explains that before God delivered us by His grace through Christ, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. But God, through the incarnation of Christ and his death and his resurrection and his ascension, he has set you free from all of that bondage. That is a freedom in which we can rest, in which we can stand and enjoy. And it's a freedom in which we can rest even when we find ourselves living with the reality of unjust laws and immoral governing officials and tyrannical powers because those things have no ultimate power over you you've already been set free those things human government it does not control your destiny and they cannot take away the living hope that is yours in christ jesus the powers of this earth are powerless over us as god's people even though they may flaunt of great power, because in Christ we are truly free. And we are free then to serve God, to serve Him without fear, without fear of condemnation, because we are His. And so Peter tells us in the last part of verse 16, we live as those who are free servants of God. You see, Freedom, it isn't unrestricted liberty to do whatever we feel like doing because we're God's people now. So we do what He desires, what honors Him, what brings Him glory. We are now His royal priesthood. And that means we are His servants working for His will to be fulfilled in this world for the good of our neighbors and for the glory of God. And He gives us a picture of what that service looks like in verse 17. He says, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Four imperatives, four different entities, all with the same goal. 
And we need to consider them briefly, individually, because these verbs, they're, they're all different. First, Peter says, honor everyone. That simply means show dignity and respect to all people, everyone, the ones that you like and the ones you don't like. Why? Because they are all created in God's image. And so for that reason alone, they deserve this, this dignity and respect. We show this kind of honor to all people, irregardless who, who they are, what kind of position they hold, whether they are believers or not. Second, he says, love the brotherhood. Who's he talking about? Well, specifically the church, fellow believers, those who are also part of God's kingdom. He wants us to demonstrate the peace of the gospel before the world through the love that we show to one another as we care for one another. Just as Jesus said, by our love for one another, all people will know that you are my disciples. Third, Peter says, fear God. And fourth, honor the emperor. Now notice, he doesn't say fear God and the emperor. He says only to fear God. And that's important. Because he's reserving the highest level of honor for the ultimate authority, God himself. God is the only being whom we ought to show that reverence in awe. Because he is our sovereign Lord and creator. But the emperor or the king or the president or the vice president or governor or whoever happens to be the person with the highest level of authority in our lives... They are not to be feared. They're simply to be honored, which means to be respected, like we respect all people. And so these four imperatives that he gives us, they take an almost poetic form here. You see on the outside are those who are furthest in relationship with us and, and with the church, that being the emperor and everybody. But then you move on to the inside, and what do you see? You see God and other believers. And you put it all together, and at the very center of that entire spectrum of our relationships, God is the centerpiece. And so we show dignity to all people. We love God's people. We fear the Lord and will respect earthly powers. And so when I started, he asked the question, how is we as believers are to live honorably when the civil powers in this world act in tyranny and wickedness and injustice? We do it just like that, as we see. Dignity to all, love for God's people, fear of the Lord, continuing to faithfully worship Him and respecting those earthly powers. And by that, we disarm the hostility of this world because we are showing that peace of the gospel that reigns in our hearts through our peaceable lives. And we are showing that we are indeed free because Christ has made us free indeed. Think about this. God uses that peaceable living and resting in His freedom in a way to impact the world that revolutions and results could never do. Peter wrote this letter early in church history. 
And the church was small. There were only a few. They were scattered in number in certain regions of the Roman Empire. But within a few hundred years, the emperor himself professed Christ. All because God's people lived peacefully, peaceable lives as much as they were able, showing to the world the peace that is theirs through Christ. You see, we as God's people are the salt of this earth. We truly are that city set on a hill, shining forth the righteousness of our Savior. And when the peace of Christ reigns in our hearts, the peace of God breaks forth into the earth. That's how we can disarm the injustice of the civil powers of this world. So let us trust God. Let us faithfully continue to worship Him and live for Him and rest in the freedom we have and in peace that is ours in Christ. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank You for Your Word. We're thankful for the truth that it contains. We're thankful that we are not called to start revolts and revolutions and try to change things in our own power and might, but to simply trust in your sovereign wisdom, to rest in the peace that we have that passes human understanding, knowing that you are in control of all things, and you have made us your people forever, and you will defend us, and you will uphold righteousness, and one day all evil and injustice will be made right, and all that resists you will be brought down, for you are the Lord, you are King over all the earth. Thank you for this great truth and may we walk in it this week and the rest of our lives. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.